You know, how many times have we prayed about things and uh, how many times have we uh, asked God for things, little maybe insignificant small things, and, and uh, they were answered and then we never gave it another thought? Now, what if every single time you ask God for something, no matter how small and insignificant it seemed to be, you never got an answer? You know, we need to stop and think a little bit about the way that God helps us. There's a number of ways that God does it. First and foremost, however, anything that God's going to do is going to be based on his purpose and the goals that he has in life for mankind. That's first and foremost. Anything that we ask now, there may be a lot of things that are relatively irrelevant as far as the overall goal is concerned, but there's even reasons God answers those. But first and foremost, anything that we ask of God, you must keep in mind, whatever God's going to do, it will be according to his purpose and his plan and his goals. Let's look at a very early example here in Genesis 4 chapter. We know what happened when Cain was jealous over his brother and he, he slew him. And uh, God told him, you're now cursed from the earth. Which has opened his mouth, and this is verse 11, which has opened its mouth to receive your, blood, your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A, vag a fugitive and a vagabond shall you be on the earth. Now, what was Cain's reply? Well, it's a reply that you'll get from many people today. I don't deserve this. I'll remember that I remember the time when and I happened to be in in um, in Colorado and was taking care of that church over in Garden City, Kansas, when this happened. And it really st stuck in my mind. And that is there was a neighboring town over there where these two ex-convicts went over there and butchered the whole family. In the middle of the night, because they'd been told by another convict that he had that this family had a, a safe in their house full of money. They didn't have any safe. They just butchered the whole family, man and, and uh, wife and, and children. Well, they finally caught him and they hung him. And when the last guy was being hung, before he got hung, he said, I don't deserve this. I'm a nice person. Is that the way people reason? They seem like they're very seldom sorry for what they did, but they're sure sorry they got caught. So here was Cain. He was typical of human nature. He, he didn't deserve the treatment he was going to get. And he said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you've driven me off of this, uh, this day from the face of the earth, and I shall be hidden from your face, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Now, what did God do? He did this for an object lesson. He did this for a very great purpose. Because remember, at this time, it had not been spelled out. Because you read a little bit later on, right after the flood, it said, By man's hand shall, man, shall man's blood be taken. That is, in the eventuality of a murder. Now, that people don't believe that today. But uh, anyway, that's what God's instruction was. Therefore, the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. He set him aside and protected him. That was for Cain's benefit. For Cain to learn, it was for us to learn. So he, this, he, he was granted his wish all right. He was spared. 
and we don't know how long he actually lived. I don't know whether I, it states here later on how many years that he lived, but anyway, you can be certain he did not have a happy life. That's just one example, but that's a sort of a negative example. Let's notice some positive ones here. Here in Genesis, the 20th chapter, we're looking at God's purpose and his goals. In, in the Genesis, the 20th chapter, Beginning in verse 1, Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she's a man's wife. Now, was God helping here? Well, this king, you know, they, they had a lot more fear of God back in those days than they have these days. And so, as you read here, now restore the verse, verse seven, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God directly took a hand, didn't he? Did he help Abraham? You know, Abraham at this point in his life was a little bit, uh, uh, lacking in the confidence that he probably should have had in God. He had to go through this more than one time before he finally learned. He, he, he came to the supreme test. But, uh, you know, more than one occasion he would tell him, well, now, don't say you're my wife, just say you're my sister. She was really his half-sister, what she was. And then uh, Bimelech made things right, as we read here in verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants, then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So you see, he did intervene, didn't he? He helped him. Now, there are many examples in the Bible that I could give of this. I'm just touching on some here and there to give us the, the general idea. But the main thing is to help us to realize we can have the same kind of help. It may not be as dramatic and it may not be as big. It may not be as... Uh, as um, stupendous as some of those things in the Old Testament, but it'll never less be there. Notice uh, Genesis 24 and verse number 2. Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over his house, all that he had said, please put your hand under my thigh. And this was a, was a, a method by which they swore, took an oath. And uh, I will make you swear by the Lord God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for the son, my son Isaac. So he went left and went on the mission, didn't he? Now look what happened. He came to this well and uh, he, he prayed, he prayed to God, and he said, Oh, Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. Let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, Drink, and I will also give to your camels a drink. Let her be the one you appointed for your servant Isaac, and by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. That was a, quite a request, wasn't it? And sure enough, lo and behold, that's exactly what the young lady did, didn't she? And she said in verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Micah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. And so we read here that this was the fulfillment of this request that Abraham had made and even what the servant had made. 
quite a dramatic incident, isn't it? Something like that would happen to us, uh, we'd really be shocked, I suppose. But it does illustrate, again, God's um, methods and ways. Now, he certainly had a goal and a purpose in doing that. Protecting Abraham, as we read back in the case of the uh, of Abimelech, and in this case here, providing uh, his son with a, with a proper mate from his own bloodlines, which is important. 1 Samuel 10, verse number 22. Here's another example. The Israelites wanted a king, didn't they? God didn't approve of it, but he let them do it. And uh, he allowed uh, Samuel to tell them all the results of what they were going to have with their king. And they wanted this king, and they wanted all these benefits, and he showed them all the curses they were going to have if they got under a king. But he went ahead and let them have it. And Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. This was in verse 17. That's where the tabernacle was located at that time. And he said, you've rejected your God who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations, and you have said to him, Now, no, set a king over us. So he gave him a king. This king was named Saul. And uh, we, in verse 21, when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen, and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. So the lot fell on him. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Now, uh, I don't know exactly what his reasoning was. It, certainly, it may well have been the fact that he was aware and the whole nation was aware that God had not approved of this. Whatever the case was, that was not going to thwart what God was allowing them to do. So what happened? Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further. Has a man come here yet? And the Lord answered, he is here, hidden among the equipment. And they pulled him out. Now, that was according to God's plan and purpose. He wanted them to learn. He, he's, he's allowed human beings on this earth the freedom of choice to be free moral agents to learn that their ways are not the ways that are going to give them what they think they want. And that's what that nation of Israel went through, and that's what the world's going through to this very day. So certainly, keep in mind, many, many examples in the Bible where God uh, intervenes and acts in various ways for to complete his purposes and his goals. That's one of the most important things to keep in mind. Now, he also um, helps us by manifesting signs and wonders. We haven't seen many of these in our time period today. In fact, I don't know of any examples where we have in modern times the kind of signs and wonders that occurred back in those days. But uh, we can notice a few here anyway. Let's notice 2 Kings chapter 5. In verse number 10, here was the example of Naaman, who was a leper, captain of the host of the Arameans. Remember, they were just north of Israel and were quite often at war with Israel. And what's very interesting about the Arameans, uh, we have, I think, sufficient amount of history to show where they migrated in later times, and they became known as the Goths and the Visigoths. The Goths themselves conquered uh, uh, Rome and ruled for some period of time, then were driven out and lost from sight. But the Visigoths migrated east or west and settled in southern France and northern Spain. And they eventually established the two kingdoms of Aragon and Castile and became known as the Spaniards. 
If you've ever seen real Spaniards, and I don't mean all these mixtures that have Indian in them, but if you see the real Spaniards, you can't tell them from us. They're just as light and, and blue-eyed and blonde as we are. So he had this leprosy, and he, he, he uh, the, the, the little maiden who was captured, an Israelitish maiden, you remember that? And she said, oh, if he just go to Israel, he'd see God's got a prophet there. So he sent to the king of Israel. You know, they must have been uh, fairly uh, prominent at that time because the king of Israel said he's just trying to pick a fight. They're sending me to give him a, a prophet and to heal him. Who's going to heal anybody of leprosy? And what did Elisha say? Send him over here. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, as we read here in verse 5, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. That's all you have to do. Oh, but see, he was an important man. Naaman was an important man. He didn't expect that kind of treatment. Well, he said, I thought he'd come out there and he'd make a sign and he'd wave his hand something and, and say something. And he tells me to go wash in this dirty Jordan River. We got cleaner rivers up in Syria than, than the Jordan River is. He was angry. And his servant said, wait a second now. If he'd have told you to do some complicated thing, would you have done it? Now, why not go dip in the Jordan River? So he went down, verse 14, and dipped seven times in the Jordan. And according to the saying of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. That was a mighty sign and a miracle, wasn't it? I think I could safely say as a result of that, they probably didn't have any wars with Syria for a long time after that. That must have certainly impressed the king as well as the, the captain of the host, Naaman. And you know, the leaders are the ones that they make the decisions and the people do follow. So that was certainly a manifestation of, of, a, of a sign and a wonder that uh, took place at that time. There are a lot of examples in the New Testament. Uh, let's just notice a couple of them here. I won't, uh, there are many, many, so I'm just, in, particularly in the book of Acts, because that was the time when we have the history up to about 61 A.D. We don't know much what happened after then, after that time period, but in Acts the fourth chapter here in verse number 31, here the disciples had been um, apprehended and abused and, and uh, for told that they were not to preach the word anymore. And so we read, when they had prayed, the place which they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Mighty sign, wasn't it? I was only in one building one time preaching on the Sabbath when the building shook. And I mean it really shook. But it was an earthquake. People started to panic. I said, just relax, wait, just stay here. And about 10, 30, 10, 20 seconds later, it quit. One fellow came up to me after the sermon. He said, I've never been so moved by a sermon in my life. Well, this was not an earthquake. I mean, this was a mighty sign and an act from God. Now, you just think back in Acts, it's Acts, the second chapter, when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came down on that 120 disciples there. That was a very impressive sign, wasn't it? That was a witness. And he says, as Peter said, it was a fulfillment of the prophecy given by Joel or whichever prophet it was back there. Another example here is in Acts, the 16th chapter. 
Acts 16, verse number 25. Paul and Silas had been put into prison. They had been whipped severely, flogged, and then they were put into prison. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Boy, what a miracle that was. Now, of course, the keeper of the prison immediately was going to kill himself. Now, you wonder, why would he want to kill himself? I'll tell you why. Under Roman law at that time period, if you were guarding a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, your life went for his life. That's how serious it was. Then Paul assured him, no, there, everyone's here. So that it had a tremendous impact. That man was baptized in his family, and it was a tremendous witness. So God does... Uh, Help us by manifesting signs and wonders at times. Now, I can't probably say enough about answering prayers for his servants. Who are God's servants? We're all the servants of God, aren't we? That's what we're called in the Bible. So as we read here back in Psalm 3, verse number 4, I cried to the Lord with my voice. Now stop and think about it. If you come to God and you're asking for something and you're nonchalant and your mind's wandering all over the place and you're just going through words and you don't really mean it down in your heart and your soul, are you going to get an answer? Unlikely. You better mean it. Don't come to God and get down on your knees and waste your time. You better be sincere in what you're doing. Because that's what makes the difference. You can go clear back here to Psalm 106, for example, and verse number 44. And here's what you read. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. They cried out for help. There are a number of psalms that uh, refer to God intervening at times. Uh, certainly he helps us by answering our prayers on many occasions. But let's notice Psalm 21, verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. If he truly is a servant of God. I don't mean to say by that that uh, somebody else who isn't is not going to receive an answer because uh, there are a lot of people who haven't been called in the time period in which we live today. And uh, I'm, I'm sure God answers their prayers at times. I couldn't think of a more demoralizing thing for somebody to be a Christian and really understand the truth and then never get a prayer answered. Stop and think about it. How many times have you had prayers answered? And I mean, th seemingly unimportant things to you, and then you forget about it right away. So you had that happen? We shouldn't. Psalm 34, 4. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord... And he heard me. He sought him. He, he, he was seeking God. He was seeking help from God. You never seek help from God. Are you ever going to get any help? It isn't going to come just by being a, a, a lukewarm Christian. We need to take our calling seriously. And it's those who really seek him that get the help that they need. Psalm 118, verse number 5. 
I called on the Lord in distress, and he answered, the Lord answered me. In distress. Have you ever been in a real situation of distress and you really cried out to God and you were delivered? You know, it seems like the further along you go in life and more the years go by, the more you have a tendency to forget those things. I'm, I regret, and I'm, I'm sure this is true of all of us, if we just would have sat down and, and had a, a little diary where we wrote down every time God answered a prayer. We might be quite surprised. Psalm 138, verse number 3. In the day when I cried out, you answered me. Let's take prayer, let's take our prayer life seriously. Let's realize we get answers when we're sincere and we mean business and God knows we're really dedicated and uh, we're trying to serve him to the very best of our ability. One other example here is in 1 Chronicles 4. This is very interesting because there's just two verses on it in the Bible here. And uh, we don't have any indication who this man was directly except that we know he was a descendant of Judah. And we read here in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and verse number 8, verse number 9, Jabez, so he's listed here, there's a, there's a series of names in this genealogy mentioned here, and we read Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez because, saying, because I bore him in pain. So she must have had a very difficult delivery. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So the Lord granted him what he requested. Very interesting, isn't it? That's all we know about it. But it does show you here that this man prayed, and probably because of his prayer, and if you'd analyze his prayer sometime here, you'd see that... Uh, he was concerned about doing what was right. And he received the answer. So it does show you that he, God does answer according to our sincerity and our, our true desires. Next, we receive answers and help according to our faith. You know, there's a number of New Testament passages that illustrate this. Let's notice, for example, in Matthew, the 8th chapter. Here was this uh, centurion. We're all aware of this particular man here because he had a, uh, a certain servant that he was very fond of, and he was paralyzed. And he went to Jesus to get help. And Jesus said, just go, go ahead and do it. He said, you don't have to come to me. I understand authority. I have a man here, and I tell him to go, and he goes. I have a man here, and he comes, and he comes. All you have to do is say the word. Now, what was Jesus' remark? Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So this man's uh, answer to prayer, of course, the prayer was answered. Jesus said, Go your way, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. According to his faith. Notice also, for example, Matthew 9, verse number 29. 
These blind men wanted to be healed, and he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you, and their eyes were opened. So God does often answer. Keep in mind, however, whatever we ask of God, it must be according to his will. That's what we read in Ephesians 5, verse 17. And so as we read here in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9. Paul didn't get an answer here. For a reason. We don't always get answers. Sometimes there's something we keep praying for year after year. There's things I've been praying about for years, and I'll keep on praying about it. But he said, There was a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that uh, it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient to you, for strength is made perfect in weakness. He didn't answer it. He told him it was best for him that he not have it answered. So maybe we ought to think about things along those lines too, but always remember this as we read in Ephesians 5.17. Let us not be, I'm paraphrasing it, let us not be ignorant or um, unwise, but let us know what the will of the Lord is. And you find that out by study and prayer. Now, as I said earlier, he answers the prayers of his servants. And I want to touch on this a little bit more directly here because it's going to be based on heartfelt, earnest prayer. Heartfelt, earnest prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So what do we have there? We have an effectual, fervent prayer. That's the first thing. Of a righteous man. That's the second thing. Consider that. Now, here's an example of a really a heartfelt prayer that was answered. Even though in this particular case, the messenger that uh, made it plain was the high priest. But this is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And you know this example here of Hannah. We read she was in bitterness of soul. And she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. She wanted a child so badly. And she made a vow. She didn't have to. But she made it anyway. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but I will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Setting him aside as a Nazarite. She had a child and God took her up on that. And that child became one of the greatest men in the Old Testament. Samuel, the prophet. So God certainly answered her prayer. But I tell you, it was, it was based on real, real anguish and concern. And it was heartfelt. Numbers chapter 12. Here's another example. You know what it says about Moses? It says he was the meekest man that ever lived. You know what that word meek means? Sure, it means that somebody's not arrogant and puffed up, but one of the primary meanings of it is he was not revengeful. He didn't seek to get even. He was not revengeful. He didn't carry a grudge. And here his own sister got up and degraded him, denigrated him publicly, and accused him of interracial marriage. 
which probably had taken place, if Josephus is correct, much earlier in his life when he was a, a general in the Egyptian army and conquered Ethiopia and married one of the daughters of the Ethiopian kings in order to cement a union with the Egyptians. Maybe she just came to, to knowledge of it at that time. I don't know, but she made a big public issue out of it. It did not please God. You don't take private matters and make them public. So this is what she did. And so we read here, The Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out here, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. And he said, Now hear my words, verse 6. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. I speak to him face to face. What he's really saying is you better realize who you're criticizing here. This is not an ordinary man. This is not even a prophet. This is a man I converse with directly. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So the anger of the Lord was aroused against him. And when the cloud departed, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. In, almost incurable. You know, leprosy is a disease of filth. And what did Moses do? Moses cried out to the Lord. We read here in verse 13, Lord, please heal her, O God, I pray. That's how Moses felt. You can see why he was called one of the meekest men alive. It's very hard for us, wouldn't it? How would it be if somebody got up and criticized you publicly, tried to humiliate you, and then you had that much of a feeling and, and forgiveness in your heart after you, after that incident? How many of us could do that? Very hard, wouldn't it? And I mean to really feel it. The Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days. And after that, she may be received again. So he forbade her presence for seven days and healed her, and she was restored then. So it shows you once again, it's based on heartfelt prayer. It's very interesting here in the book of Hosea. Uh, this King James Version is, I mean, this a new King James Version is quite similar to the King James Version, and it isn't, I don't think, nearly as good as the Moffat translation translates this text here. And this is in uh, Hosea 7 and uh, verse number 14. King James says, They did not cry out to me with their heart. Moffat says, They never put their heart in their prayers. Now, how many times have you attended services and you've heard people speak and you've heard ministers preach and people pray and it's just words? They just, they, just, just, they just say the words by rote or by memory. I attended a very well-known popular church the whole time I was growing up as a boy. And we had a regular ritual type of thing we went through. You got up and recited this and the minister said this and then the congregation said this and you just went through it regular every single Sabbath. And you know, it was kind of a good feeding and pretty shallow considering when you understand the truth, but it brought everybody into the service and uh, it was a method that everybody used. Memorized words, reading, reading from a text. They do not put their hearts in their prayers. 
Let's remember that. Now, of course, uh, God helps us a great deal just based on our true repentance, our true sorrow when we make mistakes. We all make mistakes, don't we? Is there anybody here that doesn't? I'll be the first to admit I make plenty of them. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 11 and 12, there was not uh, most commentators and Bible authorities uh, believe and state that the worst king that ever reigned was King Manasseh. We read here in verse number 11, Manasseh, king of Judah, had done these abominations. He acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and also made Judah to sin with idols. You might find it interesting to go back and see what this man did. He filled Jerusalem with blood. Very wicked, evil king. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem the calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah, who's, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And then you know what happened. He brought the Assyrians against him. We read in verse 16, more, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, beside his sin by which he had made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now we find out what happened to him when he went over to 2 Chronicles 33. We don't get the story here in Kings, but we certainly do in 2 Chronicles 33. And in 2 Chronicles 33... Beginning in verse 11, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him to Babylon. Hauled off like a common criminal. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly. Sometimes it takes this. Now, people will usually do one or two things when they get in some kind of, get in some kind of a situation like, like this. They will admit they're wrong, acknowledge the error, and, and turn around and repent. Or they'll just harden themselves and excuse themselves and blame somebody else. Which one's it going to be? Which one should it be? He prayed to him, and he received his entreaty heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem. Into his kingdom, he was restored as the king. And Manasseh then knew that the Lord was God. And he went on a big program to undo all the damage he had done. He couldn't change the people. He knew he'd done wrong, but I can tell you, he, couldn't, he could not undo what, what, what had been done to the people. And so God just finally said, I'm going to remove them all. In spite of Manasseh's repentance and trying to do the right thing, it was too late. People get locked into a certain thing in their minds, and I mean, they're very difficult to change. And that's what happened here. But nevertheless, what it illustrates is that God heard the, this man's prayers because he truly repented. Now, what do we mean by the word repentance? It isn't only feeling sorry for what you've done. Sure, we have to feel sorry for what we've done because we're not going to repent unless we do. But then we have to stop doing wrong. 
It isn't going to do a bit of good to get up there and wail and cry and say, I'm sorry, and then go right back to it over and over again. That's not repentance. That's just the sorrow of the world. We have to stop doing what's wrong. And that's what this king had done. You got to change a heart. Well, that's what it takes. Now, God helps us in many ways at times in spite of our weaknesses and doubts. Notice uh, a couple of good examples here in the Old Testament period. We're all familiar with one of the great judges, Gideon. And uh, he was instructed to go attack these uh, Midianites. And uh, he wanted assurances. He wasn't 100% sure that, uh, you know, he was, he, God would really back him up. You know, when you are getting to ready to lay your life on the line, you know, uh, you, you, you really have to start really thinking seriously. So we read here in Judges chapter 6 and verse number 36. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hands as you have said. Look, I put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. Now, you would have thought that would have convinced him. So when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece a bowl full of water. And Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but all the ground let it be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. Yeah. God was very patient with him, wasn't he? Now even later on, notice here in chapter 7, in verse number 9. It happened the same night because God had told him to attack him. And it happened the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you're afraid, you're still afraid, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you'll hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go against the camp. So you know what happened. He overheard them talking, and they realized they were, they were, they were absolutely demoralized. These Midianites were already demoralized, and they were already frightened. And they were not in any position to really go out and fight. And so that's when they attacked, right in the middle of the night, with 300 men. Destroyed a whole army. So you see, God helps in spite of our weaknesses, doesn't he? That's why we read here in the Psalm 103, verse number 13. Psalm 103, verse number 13. As a father pities his children... So the Lord pities those that fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. So we are flesh and blood human beings, live a very limited lifespan, and we're gone here today and gone tomorrow. He knows that. Let's make the best of the time we have. Let's make it count. But God certainly is understanding of our weaknesses. Now, I mentioned earlier at the start of this sermon that uh, we have seemingly unimportant things that uh, we ask God and they're answered, and then we have a tendency to forget them, don't we? 
Well, there's, God answers a lot of unimportant things. Helps out in many things. You know, they, they don't seem to be important at all in the overall scheme of things. But God still does them for his people. Showers favors and blessings upon them. Notice, Matthew 17. Here's a good example. You, you wonder, well, how important was this in the scheme of things? Because they wanted a certain coin to be placed in the treasury, and the disciples didn't have any with them at that time. And uh, Jesus said, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, Matthew 17, 27, Go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take a fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Now you'd wonder, how important is that anyway? I mean, did Christ have to worry about not offending them? They were already offended at him so much it was unreal. But he did it anyway. It seemed very important, did it? Let's notice 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 19. The actual number of miracles that were performed here by these two men, Elijah and Elisha, are just astounding, particularly Elisha. Because at this time he was residing in Jericho, there was a school of prophets there. And the men of the city said to Elisha, this is 2 Kings 3, uh, 2 Kings 2 and verse 19, The situation in this city is pleasant, but as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. Maybe it was alkaline water, we don't know was not good water, however. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From, that, from it there shall be no more death nor barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day. Small matter, wasn't it? They could have just well moved their camp, moved their the school of the prophets someplace else. Actually, that city of Jericho, the remains of it, it doesn't even remain as a city anymore. They just find ruins there, but at that time there was a school of prophets there. Little insignificant things, supposedly. Second Kings 4, verse number 1. A certain woman of the wives of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditors are coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, what shall I do to you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in his house but a jar of oil. And he said, go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels do not gather just a few. And when you come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons. Then pour it into all the vessels and set aside the full ones. Now, you'd wonder how important that is. I can, oil was a very expensive item in those days. This was a huge amount of wealth that this woman was all of a sudden receiving. So she went in from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels out to her, and she poured it out. Now, it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There's not another vessel. So the oil ceased. And she came and told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your son shall live on the rest. 
Does God take care of little things? You bet he does. Notice verse number 12. Here he was staying with this uh, Shunammite woman. She uh, put up a place for him to stay as he passed through, and so he and Gehazi would stay there. And uh, Elisha, he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he called her, she stood before him, and he said to her, Say now, look, you've been concerned with us with all of this care. What can I do for you? This is in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse number 13. Do you want me to speak in your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. In other words, she was satisfied where she was. She didn't need any favors. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. So he called, he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. So she said, oh, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. Now, the son actually died later on and then was miraculously resurrected. Brought back to life. So you see, uh, we might think of these things as being insignificant. Well, how important is in the overall scheme of things? Well, God blesses and looks after his true servants and his people. Those who truly try to obey him and uh, live up to what they know is required of them. Uh, verses, um, verse number 38. This is the incident here where Elisha returned to Gilgal and there was a famine in the land. At this time, Gilgal is where the, the tabernacle was located. There was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him and he said to his servant, put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out to the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them in, into the, the, the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat, and now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there's death in this pot. And they could not eat it. Poison. You know, there are a number of, uh, of herbs that uh, plants bearing seed and, uh, and otherwise that are poisonous. And what most authorities will tell you is that um, you can tell by the taste. If it's bitter, don't eat it. And uh, they didn't check it out, as we said here. So he said, then bring me, bring me, bring some flour. And he put it in the pot and said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Miracle after miracle, wasn't it? This Elisha was truly a miracle worker. Uh, 41. Then came a man from Baal Shalasha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread, new of, and newly ripened grain from his knapsack, and he said, Give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, What? Shall I set this before 100 men? He said, Give it to the people that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. So Jesus wasn't the only one to perform miracles and made the food go around. Elisha did too. 
So you see, we may think these things are unimportant, but they really, they really are significant when we understand that uh, God helps us in many un seemingly unimportant things. I know I've heard people say to me, "Well, I don't want to, I don't want to pray for that because it's not, it's, it's not important. It's just some little thing." Well, now how do you know how God judges it? He may not judge it the way you do. Second Kings six, verse number four. They were going out to prepare a place to stay, and one of the servants with him, and he said, I'll go. So he went with them, and they came to Jordan. They cut down trees. This is in 2 Kings 6, beginning here in verse number 4. And as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water, and he cried and said, Alas, my master, for it was borrowed. So he lost the head of the axe. Anybody ever ever pound with an axe or something, all of a sudden the head flies off? Probably had it happen. So the man of God said, where did it fall? He showed him the place. Then he cut off a stick and threw it in there and he made the iron float. Then he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. Seemingly small, wasn't it? Well, let's not undersell God. I just have one more to give here before I bring this to a close. And I want to show here that uh, we're talking here about the ways that God helps us. You know, he helped one incident here when, when the prayer was very, very short. Notice it here in 1 Kings 18. This is when Elijah was having the showdown with the priests of Baal. And uh, we read here that uh, he drenched the offering and the moat and everything around with water. And it came to pass, as we read here in verse 36, that the time of the evening oblation that Elijah the prophet came, that is at the time of the oblation, doesn't necessarily even mean even here, Elijah the prophet came and said, Lord God of Israel, of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known to this day that you are the God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done all these things. At your word, hear my prayer, O Lord, hear me, for this people may know that you're the Lord God, and that you've turned their back, uh, they, and have turned their backs, their backs to you again. That was his prayer. What happened? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw it. They fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he's God. The Lord, he is God. Very short prayer, wasn't it? But I don't believe that if someone who has not been praying regularly and doesn't have any contact with God on a regular basis can expect an answer from a short prayer like that. See, it all depends on the degree by which we Maintain close contact with God. So God helps us in many different ways. Let's, uh, let's be conscious of these things. And as we live our lives trying to obey God, let's be aware that uh, God is unlimited in the way that he can choose to answer and help us.